Hey, good morning. How's everybody? Good. Good to see you. Welcome to the Parkway Church. My name is Zach, one of the pastors here. Hope that you are doing great. Today, we're going to be talking about 1 Corinthians 7, which is a text about uh, sex, 1 Corinthians 7, 1 through 5. So we're going to talk about the birds and the bees Parkway style. Now, this is not going to be an entire theology of sex. That would take a long time. The Bible has a lot to say about it. Specifically, it's going to be talking about avoiding sexual immorality. Uh, I think that's actually the reason why the lights are dimmer in here than normal. It's just because, you know, it's the topic. We're trying to set the mood or whatever it might be. Uh, I want to say this, though, before we get into the text, uh, that if you are somebody who has been sexually assaulted, okay, if you are somebody who's been sexually assaulted, you're somebody who uh, has been molested, whatever it might be, statistically, that's one out of four women and one out of six men, I want to say something to you first before we get into this text. First of all, I am so sorry that that happened to you. I am sorry that someone took what was supposed to be God's gift for a married couple, and they twisted it, and they used that to hurt you. I want you to know that Christ has come not only to forgive you of your sins, but also to help heal you of sins that have been done to you, okay? And so you might need to get some counseling. You might need to meet with us, meet with a staff member or an elder so that we can help you work through this difficult issue. God's commands are still binding to you, even if that has happened to you, but we are here to help walk alongside you and assist with that. So let me pray, and then with that uh, kind of uh, warning, then we will jump into uh, a very spicy text, okay? You'll find out that God is perhaps less of a prude than you thought he was. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this text. We thank you that uh, you have given it to us to help us. I pray for every marriage in here that you would uh, encourage it, that you would uh, grow that marriage. We thank you for your word. We pray that uh, you would open our eyes to see wonderful things in it. Spirit, we ask that you would change our hearts. We ask all this in the name of Christ. Amen. All right. First of all, why are we talking about this? It's not just because we like things that are spicy and controversial here at Parkway. We're talking about it for two reasons. The first is because the Bible has a lot to say on this topic. Okay, the Bible, sex is God's idea. That might blow your mind. We like to think that we invented it or something as humans. Sex was God's idea. When he created Adam and Eve, it's not like he created them and he just went to go get a snow cone and he came back and he's like, what is happening? Okay, that's not what happened. That was God's plan. That was before the fall. They were commanded to be fruitful and multiply before the fall of man, and so this has always been God's plan. And so the church, throughout the last 2,000 years of church history, have been absolute cowards when it comes to this topic, okay? But they, I mean, they, they just don't talk about it. They're embarrassed about it. They're ashamed of it. They try to be holier than God. They try to be holier than the Bible. This is why in the Victorian era, they would put skirts, table skirts, around the legs of the table as not to arouse people. This is why John Calvin kicked a guy out of his congregation and excommunicated him because he said that Song of Solomon was about romantic love. And it is about romantic love. It is Hebrew erotica right there in your sacred scriptures, Okay. So the church has done a terrible job in dealing with this, but the church should be the one place that you go to hear God's thoughts on sex that he's put in his word. Where else will godly people learn about this if not from scripture? Are we to learn about it from pornography or from the locker room or from gossip from our friends? No, we're talking about it because the Bible talks about it. That's the first reason, okay? The second reason is that this issue is eating our culture alive. This is our issue, just like it was in Corinth. In Corinth, they've got guys sleeping with a stepmom and going to temple prostitutes and all kinds of stuff. That is the God of our day, okay? America does not worship Jesus. America worships Aphrodite. We worship the goddess of sex. That's, that's what we do. So we need to deal with this topic because if we don't, we're the only ones not dealing with it. Let me start with some statistics for you. 
First, pornography. Every second, 28,258 people are watching pornography on the internet. Pornography is a multi-billion, that's with a B, dollar a year industry, and it makes more money than all professional sports combined. Take all the money made by the NFL, MLB, NBA, professional golf, et cetera, and you combine it, and it is, it is nothing compared to the amount of money made in the porn industry. One-third of all pornography viewers are women. This is not just a man's issue. You would assume that would be something like 5%. One-third, and that number is going up, okay? This is an issue that both men and women deal with. Every day, there are 116,000 searches for child pornography. The average age that a child first sees pornography is between the ages of 9 and 11. And with the advent of the smartphone, that number's actually gone down. So if you're a parent that gives your children unrestricted access to the internet on some sort of smartphone or something and they're young, you need to rethink your life. We have resources to help you with children and technology, but they're probably have already seen it, they're probably already looking at it a bunch and you just don't know. Sex trafficking. There are two million children that are subjected to prostitution in the global commercial sex trade. There are 21 million victims of human trafficking worldwide as of 2012, that's an old statistic. Okay? Slavery is a modern thing. This is a, we have more slaves today than we would have had even close to in the Roman Empire. And they are sex slaves, 21 million plus. Human trafficking is 150 billion, that's with a B, dollar a year industry. And the city in the U.S. with the most sex trafficking is Houston, Texas. Why? Because it's a port city near the cartels in Mexico. The border issue is not about racism. Stop being naive. It's about stopping cartels from bringing narcotics and child prostitutes back and forth across the border. Premarital sex. The average man in the U.S. has had about 20 sexual partners in his lifetime. By the time they reach the age of 44, there are 95% of people who will have had premarital sex. Almost 100% of people at some point in their life will commit fornication, have sex outside of marriage, 95%. And with this goes along the issue of abortion. 85% of all abortions are done by single women. In New York City alone, 38% of all pregnancies end in abortion. In New York City, for every 10 women that gets pregnant, four of them will abort that baby, okay? New York City is like Babylon or something. 70% of women who have abortions claim to be Christian. This isn't just an issue that losties are dealing with. This is an issue that some of our own people have had to go through, and Christ can even heal you of the aftermath of an abortion. According to Pew Research, half of U.S. Christians say that casual sex between unmarried adults is sometimes or always acceptable. Half of Christians say that. This isn't just the world out there. This thing is eating the church alive as well. How about some homosexuality? About 78% of men who claim to be homosexual have had 100 or more partners. 28% have had more than 1,000 partners. And 79% of the sexual partners they have had are complete strangers. Gay marriage was not about equality. It was about normalizing something that the Bible condemns. Whereas 85% of heterosexual women and 75% of heterosexual men have never cheated, only about 4% of those in a committed homosexual relationship have remained faithful. Now, with that in mind, keep in mind that less than 1% of the global population claims to be gay. Less than 1%. Society would have you think it's something like one out of three people, right? Right? It is a tiny, tiny, tiny fringe minority, less than 1% globally, more in places like America where it's an advantage to do that socially, but actually throughout the world it is very rare. How about adultery? About 41% of married people will have an affair. 
40% of online affairs turn into physical affairs. If I could just get rid of you talking to your ex on Facebook, I could just cut adultery in half, right? 74% of men and 68% of women, so almost the same amount, confessed that they would have an affair if they knew they wouldn't get caught. Now listen to this last one. 53% of marriages, including Christian marriages, end in divorce with sexual frustrations being a high contributing factor to that. That's why we're talking about this. Not only does the Bible do it, but we must because this is the issue of our day. The gender and sexuality thing, that is our Arianism or that is our Protestant Reformation or whatever it is, that is the issue. So we have to deal with it and the Bible is gonna deal with it. Okay, you guys ready to get into the text? Usually I like to start with jokes, but I'm starting heavy because I don't wanna do too many jokes because I don't trust the jokes on this topic that will come out of my mouth, okay? So, verse one. I'm reining a lot in. You should have heard all the jokes that got shot down by the staff. Okay. <laughs> Verse one. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Uh-oh, what's going on here? Now let me back up. This is really important that you understand this. There is a sense in which, the, in which Paul would agree with that thing that's in quotes. Okay? Elsewhere in 1 Corinthians, he's going to say that if you can be single and celibate, and by the way, those always go together in the Bible, that if you could be single and celibate, and you can do that, then maybe you should consider it. Because if you are single, it's not that you're holier than someone who's married, but you have more practical time to devote to areas of ministry. You're not worried about taking care of a family, you have more time to serve God and serve others, and so Paul elsewhere will approve singleness and celibacy. That's just not the thrust of this text, okay? Here's what you need to understand. That phrase in quotations, it is good for a man not to touch a woman, literally is what it says in Greek, or to have sexual relations with a woman. That is not Paul's view. That is the Corinthians' view that Paul is refuting. Do you understand that? Jared talked about this last week. The book of 1 Corinthians is a letter written in response to a letter the Corinthians have already written to Paul. So they wrote to Paul and they brought up all this bad theology and what Paul is doing throughout 1 Corinthians is he is quoting them and then he's refuting them. And you don't have to know Greek to know that. Look at the context. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, meaning you wrote to me this following sentence. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Paul, though, is going to rebuke that. Paul is a Jew. For him, he understands it's not good for man to be alone. Not that it's bad for him to have sexual relations with a woman. It's not good for him to be alone. That's why God made Eve for Adam. So what he's doing is he's taking a Corinthian slogan and he's going to refute it. Now, why are the Corinthians saying these weird things? Here's why. The Corinthians are overly pseudo-spiritual. They're falsely spiritual. On the one hand, they think they can commit all this sexual activity because they think, ah, that's just my body. That's not my soul. God only cares about my soul, not my body. And Paul has to say, stop being weirdly spiritual. On the other hand, what they're probably doing is you have people denying their spouse sex. He's talking about married people, and they're denying their spouse sex. Why? Because they're trying to be falsely spiritual, and they have what is called an over-realized eschatology. <laughs> what does that mean? It means that because they know that Christ is coming back, because they know that one day we won't have sex in marriage, Jesus says in heaven that we will be like the angels who are neither married nor given in marriage, they're probably already trying to live that way now. You see, there's something in the human heart that always thinks that asceticism is more spiritual. We always think that somehow it's more honoring to God to deny ourselves food or to deny ourselves alcohol or to deny ourselves sex and marriage. We have this tendency to think this is what's most holy. 
despite all the Bible's commands about food not being the thing that makes you holy or whatever. It's rather righteousness, spirituality, holiness, obeying God's commands. And so what you have here is Paul having to correct them and say, no, 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 no. You need to be having sex with your spouse. Sex in marriage is not sinful, it's worship, okay? It's worship. It's not just that sex is no longer dirty, it's that it is worship. My wife and I one time were doing premarital counseling with a couple who was gonna get married and uh, we came to the topic of sex and so they had to go home and read some about that and then come back and talk to us and the girl just looked very, very uncomfortable. She's like, I don't, I don't know if I agree with this. And I said, tell me what you mean. She goes, this idea of sex as worship is so weird. And I was like, what, what is weird about it? What do you mean? And here's what she thought. She thought that what that meant was you had to sing worship songs during the act, okay? Now, if that's your thing, fine. But for her, for her, we had to say, no, that's not what we mean. What we mean is this. Sex is not just something that when you're single is dirty and then you get married and it's a little less dirty. It's actually good in God's eyes for people who are married, okay? It's actually good. And by the way, for this entire sermon, when I say the word married, I mean a monogamous heterosexual marriage. That's what the term means. That's what I mean by it. Okay? The Bible's commands with sex are very, very simple. Within marriage, good. Anything outside of it, bad. Super simple. Very cut and dry. Okay? But it's hard for us to reorient our minds around this when, because we go with sex being dirty our entire lives. And then at the pronouncement of the minister, it now becomes clean that you are now husband and wife. It's hard to reorient our minds around that and to get rid of that baggage and that guilt that we often carry with us. Verse 2. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. I want you to underline if you've got your Bible, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality. Let me tell you why this is so profound. I have a few profound things to say. This is very profound. Part of the purpose of sex is to help you avoid illicit sex. Part of the purpose of sex in marriage is to avoid sexual sin outside of marriage. Now let me tell you why that's so profound. Imagine, so I'm a pastor, imagine someone comes to my office and they say, Zach, I have been having orgies and I've been going to temple prostitutes. What should I do? Should I get married? My inclination would be to say, no, you should never get married. You should join a recovery program for the rest of your life. That's what would be my inclination. But I would be wrong, okay? This text is saying that part of the purpose of marriage is to fight sin. It is to fight temptation. When you marry somebody, you're taking on their sexual sin, in a sense, as a burden for you to bear. Part of the purpose of marriage is to fight sin. When my wife and I went through premarital counseling at a church, they had a rule that if you had sex before marriage, they would push your wedding date back. That is the exact opposite of what this text says to do, okay? Now, let me be clear. Sex will not solve your sin problem. Sex is not the solution to sin. Okay? What sex does, though, is it stacks the deck in your favor. It makes it easier to obey God because then you have an appropriate place for that sexuality within the confines of marriage. But it will not solve your sin issue. Your sin issue can only be solved with the gospel. So you have no idea how many guys I meet that have a sexual problem and then they get married and then they finally have someone they can have sex with and it's not sin and guess what they still are tempted towards? Adultery, pornography, flirting with a girl at work, whatever it is. Why? because the issue is not physical. It's a sin issue. What you're wanting is what's forbidden because your heart longs for what's evil, not 
what's good because we're broken and we're sinful. So sex will not solve the sin problem, but here's what Paul is saying, it will help. If somebody is starving and I say, go the next 10 hours without eating, that's difficult for them. But if somebody just had Thanksgiving dinner and I say, go the next 10 hours without eating, they might still get hungry, but it is much easier to obey, okay? It is much easier to obey. Other thing I want you to see, if you are someone who is single and you want to get married or you struggle with sexual immorality, you know what you should do? Get married. The Bible's super clear on this. Stop doing the ridiculous evangelical thing which goes something like this. God, I so want a spouse. I just want you to bring me a spouse. I just want them to fall down in front of me. I'm gonna put forth no effort. I don't wanna try too hard. That would be idolatry because I so badly want to get married. So I will just wait. Stop doing that, okay? It's 2021. You can find a date like you buy a car. You can pick a year, a make, and a model. It's super easy, okay? Hitler had a girlfriend. You can do it, okay? If the least attractive guy in world history can get married, which he did to Ava Braun, I know you can do it, okay? Stop overcomplicating it. But Zach, I kiss dating goodbye. Don't do that. Kiss dating hello and be where single godly people are. If you're single and you want to get married, be around single godly people and flirt. That is my pastoral advice to you. <laughs> because that's what the Bible would say. He who finds a wife finds a good thing. Or here, that if you're struggling with this, it is good for you to get married, okay? So each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Now, on the other hand, I need to say this as a caution to you, okay? Do not settle, though, for a spouse. You have no idea how many people, they want to get married so badly, and so they just rush into a marriage with somebody that's a loser. And if you do that, you will ruin your life. You will ruin your life. And this happens more often with women than with men. They become afraid that they're gonna be single for too long and they're getting older and their biological clock is ticking. So they just marry some guy. He seems okay, despite the fact that all your friends hate him. He seems like, man, I, I can change him. Don't rush into that. I promise you it's better to be single wishing you were married than married wishing you were single. Now, I also want you to see something else that's here that's interesting. In verse two, I want to read it again. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, look at this, each man should have his own wife. Notice that's man singular and wife singular. And each woman singular, her own husband singular. In Greek, those are all singular terms. This is an implicit condemnation of polygamy in this text as well, okay? I've heard even some well-meaning Christians say the Bible never condemns polygamy. Jesus explicitly says that if you're married and you don't properly divorce your wife, you're still married, and you marry another, you commit adultery. You don't have a second wife. Jesus is clear, you're married, you didn't properly divorce your wife, you go married, you've committed adultery. The Bible is extremely clear on this. When Jesus is asked about marriage, it's not that the three shall become one flesh or the four shall become one flesh. That's a command, two shall become one flesh is like thou shall not murder. This is a command. You don't have polygamy appearing in the Bible till after the fall. And just because something happens in the Bible doesn't mean it should happen doesn't mean it's good. There's rape, there's molestation, there's incest, there's all kinds of things in the Old Testament. Doesn't mean God's like, that's it. That's what you should do, okay? But in case you missed all of that, notice this text. Each man, singular, should have his own wife and each woman her own husband, not another's husband. John Calvin says this. For this reason also polygamy is again condemned. For if this is an invariable condition of marriage that the husband surrenders the power of his own body and gives it up to his wife, how could he afterwards connect himself with another as if he were free? You normally didn't have to say anything about this, but because culture has gotten weird, the first domino to fall was gay marriage, then it will be uh, plural marriage, and then after that it'll be pedophilia. Mark my words, okay? That's, what, that's what's coming. That's what's happening. 
Verse three, the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. Okay, a few general things and then I'm gonna address the men and the women specifically. A few general things. First of all, this is a command for you to hear, not for your spouse to hear. So as I read that, don't be elbowing your spouse. Be like, listen to Zach, this is a man of God today. He is preaching. Don't do that. This is a command that you need to hear. The question is, how am I to serve my spouse, not how can my spouse serve me? New Testament scholar Gordon Fee says this, Paul's emphasis, it must be noted, is not you owe me, but on I owe you, okay? The next profound thing I'm going to say is right now, and I need you to listen to this because this could save your marriage. Sex in marriage is not a reward for good behavior. It is a right. It is a duty. It is something you owe your spouse, okay? Listen to what I'm about to say. Most of you are thinking of this wrongly because here's how you think of it. You think sex is what we have when we're doing well, don't you? You think when we're clicking, when we're talking, when we've gone on a date, when we're not fighting, that's when we have sex. It's just the icing on the cake after the relationship is already good. That is the opposite of what this text is going to say. This text is going to say that you need to have sex when your marriage is bad. It's a duty that you owe your spouse. In fact, that's how you're going to make your marriage better. Most people think we'll have sex, we've been fighting today so we won't have sex because we're fighting. That is the time you most need to have sex. The time you most need to have sex is when you don't want to, is when you're fighting, is when you're not clicking, is when you're making each other mad. Sex is the tool that God has given you to grow your marriage and to make it healthy. So most of you are doing that backwards. Let's get our marriage healthy so we're friends and then we'll have sex. Doesn't work that way. Now there's nothing wrong with that. Do that too. I want you having sex all the time when you're doing well, when you're not doing well, when it's sunny, when it's rainy, whatever. Tuesday, Saturday, go crazy. But what the text is gonna say is this is not just I'm doing well. These, these, these ladies are married to men who are going to temple prostitutes. And Paul's advice to say, you wanna heal your marriage? This is the beginning of it. Sex is the tool that God has given you to heal your marriage. You don't do good and then have sex as a reward. You use sex and that will eventually help your marriage. Do you see how backwards that is to most of the ways that we think about sex? We think it's a reward for good behavior. We don't think that this is a conjugal duty that I have to have. And part of the reason you think that is because of Hollywood. Sex does not always have to be romantic. Sex does not always have to be emotional. You don't always have to be clicking. In this text, it's very practical. Stop overcomplicating it. Stop reading too much onto it that you don't need to read onto it, okay? This is a task that you owe your spouse. Now, I wanna address the men, and by men I mean married men, and then I'm gonna address the women. And then for the next text, I'm gonna address the women, and then I'm gonna address the men. So I'm gonna hit everybody, okay? The Bible is an equal opportunity hater, and it will hit everybody. So I'm gonna do that as well. I'm not gonna just beat up one group, I'm gonna beat up both groups because that's what this text does. A few things, first of all, to the men. It says, the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights. Now, when I used to read that, I used to think to myself, what a waste of ink. Why would you need to tell a man to have sex with his wife, okay? And then I got into pastoral ministry and I would say that about one out of every 10 couples that I counsel, the wife is more sexual than the husband. Nine out of 10, husband's more sexual than the wife. But one out of 10, the wife is more sexual than the husband. So if you are one of those men, first of all, who's married to a woman who's more sexual than you, first, you need to know that God loves you, apparently more than the rest of us, okay? 
and you need to be thankful for what you have. But here's what you need to hear. You are called to lay down your preferences and to serve your wife, okay? You are called to lay down your preferences and you are called to serve your wife. I don't care if you want to. This is a duty that you owe your spouse. Find a way to love her the way that she wants to be loved, okay? Additionally, I thought when I was single, and maybe some of you single people think this, that there will never be a time when I won't want to have sex when I get married, okay? Maybe you've thought that. But surprise, surprise, there will be times when you don't want to have sex and your wife does. It's rare, but it happens. Maybe you've had a difficult day at work. Maybe you've got a lot on your mind. Maybe you just ate a huge plate of nachos. I don't know, whatever. And you're less apt. And you are called to serve your wife in this area. This isn't just an issue. Yeah, the the, the sexuality issue is not just a male-only or a female-only issue. It's both. It's both, okay? To the the women, to the wives, let me say a few things to you, and then uh, I will hit your husbands harder in just a second because I've got more to say to them later on. To the women, let me say a few things to you. First of all, notice that you are meant to enjoy sex. That's why it says, and likewise the wife to her husband. This is not just a man's thing. A lot of women feel guilty in marriage when they have sex. They feel like if they enjoy it too much that they're being like a man or that they are uh, doing something wrong or bad or sinful. That's not the case. God has wired you even biologically to like sex with your husband as well. You are meant to enjoy that. Paul might be the first writer in antiquity to mention this reciprocity when it comes to owning your spouse's body. What do I mean by that? This text is offensive to feminists because it says that a husband owns his, wife body, his wife's body, but it's also offensive to chauvinists because it says that the wife owns her husband's body. Notice that. Sex in the ancient world was just for procreation, and in the Roman world, it was something that men enjoyed and women just sort of had to endure. But here in this text, it is meant to show that there's this reciprocity here. Yes, a husband is over his wife in authority, but when it comes to the area of owning each other's bodies, that's mutual. That's equal, okay? And so you need to hear that. Now, here's the the more difficult thing. Ladies, please hear what I'm about to say. I wanna make sure that I couch this correctly. There is a question that I've often asked married men. Do you wanna know what the question is? Here's the question. Would you rather have your wife be average in the area of sexuality, but extremely beautiful? Or would you rather have your wife be average when it comes to beauty, but extremely sexual? Let me say that again. Would you rather have your wife be average when it comes to her sex drive, but extremely beautiful, just drop dead gorgeous, or would you rather her have average beauty, but be very intimate towards you and to be very warm towards you? Do you know what 100% of the men that I've asked that question to have said? The second one. Now let me tell you why that's so important. Women are very concerned, rightfully so, with body image, with how they look, with all of that, but some of that is negative influence from culture. Culture teaches women to hate their bodies, okay? They have airbrush models on magazines, they have women on the line that are unrealistic, and so there's this insecurity with a lot of women on how they look, okay? Now, there's nothing wrong with, look good, go for it. Look attractive to your husband, nothing wrong there. Listen to what I'm trying to say, though. When it comes to you changing your looks, you can only do so much, If you're tall, you're not gonna become short. If you're short, you're not gonna become tall. If you have your mother's hips that you hate, they're not going away. But what you can control is the thing your husband cares about more anyway. Do you see what I'm saying? This is huge. The the thing that's actually under your control, you can change. And that's the thing that your husband cares about more anyway. 
Keep that in mind. I've seen a bunch of men in a career of pastoral ministry, I've seen a bunch of men cheat on their wife with somebody less attractive than their wife. I've never seen one of them cheat on their wife with somebody less sexual than their wife. They cheat with somebody more sexual. Not saying it doesn't happen, just saying I haven't seen it. Verse four. I'll continue again with the women and then I'll get to the men. Verse four. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Let's look at that first one. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. That's my favorite verse in the Bible. That's my life verse. I don't know what you have embroidered on a pillow, but I have that embroidered on a pillow. Now, let me say a few things to the women. First of all, women, wives specifically. It is not wrong for your husband to want you sexually, and he's not being selfish in so doing, okay? A lot of times I hear women speak as if their husband is being, oh, my husband just wants all this sex. They, they act as though their husband is somehow being selfish for wanting what belongs to him. Does he think you're selfish when you wanna have emotional connection and you wanna talk to him? They're not selfish because you own your spouse. He owns you and you own him, okay? You need to keep this in mind because this is huge, that it's not wrong for your husband to want you sexually. Do you know why you think it's selfish? Because of boyfriends that you've had. You've had boyfriends that pushed for something that didn't belong to them. So then when you do get married and your husband pushed for something that does belong to him, you think that he's being selfish. But you must realize that boyfriends shouldn't get husband's privileges and husbands shouldn't get boyfriend's restrictions. Tweet it, okay? (laughs) Second thing I want you to see, underline that word body. It is not wrong for your husband to want your body. I've heard women say, my husband doesn't want me, he just wants sex. My husband doesn't love me, he just loves my body, or he just loves my body parts. You are your body. Stop being a Gnostic. Bodies don't just walk around, they're attached to people. In the same argument the transgender community makes by saying I'm something other than my body and my body doesn't matter, stop doing that. When your husband wants your body, he's also wanting you. He's not objectifying you, he married you and thus made you a subject, okay? Meaning not an object. So it's not wrong for him to want you or to want your body. He's not being selfish in so doing. But I'm not just saying that. The Bible has some places where it will even praise the body parts of a man's wife. Let me just read a few of those to you. Proverbs 5, 18 through 19. Let your fountain, meaning where you go for sexual fulfillment, meaning your spouse, not somebody else's fountain, Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. A lovely deer, a graceful doe, let her breast fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Is it hot in here? Did you hear what this just said? This is also one of the reasons, by the way, if you're a nursing mother, you can breastfeed publicly with a cover, but you should not do it uncovered. Why? It's natural. Not according to the Bible. According to the Bible, your breasts are not just a food source for your children. They are also sexual for your husband. Song of Solomon, four, one through five. This is where Solomon will praise the body of his wife from her head down to her feet. We're not gonna read all of it, it's long. I wanna read a few verses though for you. Song of Solomon, four, one through five. Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. And he'll start working down her body. Your eyes are doves behind your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of shorn ewes that have come up from the washing, all of which bears twins, and not one among them has lost its young. Let's pause for a second. I like that descriptor because he's saying, she's got all her teeth, right? (laughs) Nothing more attractive than a woman with all her teeth. And all God's people who are not from Arkansas said, amen. All right. 
Your lips are like a scarlet thread and your mouth is lovely. Your cheeks are like halves of a pomegranate behind your veil. Your neck is like the tower of David built in rows of stone. On it hang a thousand shields, all of them shields of warriors. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle that graze among the lilies. Mother, may I? And it gets worse or better. Song of Solomon 7, 7 through 9. Your stature is like a palm tree and your breasts are like its clusters. I say, I will climb the palm tree and lay hold of its fruit. Oh, may your breast be like clusters of the vine and the scent of your breath like apples and your mouth like the best wine. It goes down smoothly for my beloved gliding over lips and teeth. Listen to Solomon being so naughty, okay? Do you hear this? It is not wrong, ladies, for your husband to want you sexually or to want your body. That's something you owe him. Now to the men. I've got a lot to say to the men. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Five things I want you to hear, men, on this. First of all, because your body belongs to your wife, you should try to look good for her, okay? She tries to look good for you, you should put forth some effort. Wear a clean shirt every now and again. Go ahead and do this, put your hand up by your ear. If you feel any hair, trim it. Look down at your belt buckle. If you can't see it, join a gym. You owe looking good to your spouse. Do you know why I have this beard other than to intimidate you? It's because my wife likes it. Without a beard, I look like a serial killer. <laughs> and so she likes the beard, that's why I have it, because my body belongs to her. A lot of the clothes that I like, she won't let me wear. She says, tactical is not really cool, right? <laughs> but that's because my body belongs to her. So one, you should try to look attractive to your wife. She puts forth a lot of effort for you, you need to do the same for her. Second, you are commanded to pursue your wife sexually the way that she wants sex. There are times where she serves you the way you want sex, but there are times where you need to serve her the way that she wants sex. It is also good for there to be romance and intimacy and all those other things. There's time for champagne and strawberries. There's time for these kind of things. You need to pursue your wife the way that she wants to be loved. Third thing, listen to this, because this is what most men don't do a good job, and myself including. The main thing your wife wants from you is she wants you to pursue her emotionally. She wants you to look her in the eye. She wants to have a conversation with you when you're not on your phone. She wants you to bring her flowers. She wants a romantic text messages. She wants to feel like she's the only girl in the world for you because she should be. She wants non-sexual touching too. She wants you to hold her hand or put your hand on her leg or rub her back. Tell your wife you love her. But Zach, I did that a long time ago. Tell her more. Tell your wife how beautiful she is. I told her that last anniversary. Tell her more. She wants a companion in life to emotionally, spiritually, and relationally connect with her. She wants you to come in and ask her about her day. She wants you to care about the things she cares about. She wants your sympathy, not always your solutions. Part of your body belonging to your wife means that you use that body to pursue her the way she wants to be pursued, not just the way you think you should pursue. And if you don't know how to do that, talk to men that are good at it, okay? Talk to other men and learn how to do it. Number four, stop being such a jerk to your wife and she will have more sex with you, okay? Now, she's still called to have sex with you whether you're being a jerk or not. So before you start fist bumping, the Bible says that your wife you're meant to treat as a fellow heir in the grace of life. You are to be kind to her. You are to be gentle to her. You should not be cursing at her. You should not be yelling at her. You especially should not be hurting her. 
And by the way, wives, if your husband is doing something he shouldn't be doing with you, sexual or otherwise, come talk to us. Because though your husband is an authority over you, the church stands over him. That's why we have our woodshed ministry. where We take men out to the woodshed and we <laughs> teach them what it looks like to be a man. Okay? Be kind to your wife. Okay? I promise you, it's, it's, it might be difficult for you. Men and women don't relate the same. Be gentle, be loving, be patient. Don't be mean to her, don't be harsh with her, be kind with her. Make it easier for her to obey God in these commands. And then lastly, if you're a man who is looking at, continually looking at pornography, which is most men in evangelicalism, by the way, you must repent. Don't be surprised that God doesn't answer your prayers. Don't be surprised that you're never walking in joy. Don't be surprised you're doing those things if you're walking in the sin of committing visual adultery on your wife. If you are looking at pornography, you are walking in sin. Don't be surprised when God doesn't answer your prayers, when you're miserable. That's how it's going to be. Don't be surprised your marriage is miserable. That's how it's going to be. What you need to do is repent. But Zach, I can't. I'm addicted. You're not addicted. That's victimization mentality. According to the Bible, you're not waiting to be set free from your porn struggle. You are set free at your conversion, which means what you're doing, you're doing voluntarily. You're doing because you want to. At the end of the day, you love that porn more than you love Jesus. That's the issue. You could walk away from it any point you want to if you're a regenerate Christian. The spirit is in you. So you've already been set free. You're voluntarily enslaved to it. And so what you need to hear is the solution for you is the gospel. At the end of the day, you just love your sin more than you love Jesus. That's the issue. It's not more complicated than that. But the reason you don't see Jesus as better than your sin is you don't know how much he loves you. Despite the fact that you are a pervert, Jesus loves you, and he has died for your sins so that you might walk in freedom. He who the Son is set free is free indeed. Verse 5a, do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Look at that first part. Do not deprive one another. That is a biblical command. That word in Greek, deprived, is translated elsewhere in the New Testament as defrauded, meaning somebody who steals something from somebody else. If you are going long periods of time without sex with your spouse. And by the way, as a little parenthesis, there are times for that. As you get older in age, if there is some type of illness, if there is a lot of travel or something, there will be times where you are not having sex and it's not wrong or sinful. But on the, the normal way the Christian marriage should work is pretty frequent sex. If you are wanting, not wanting sex and your spouse is, you are defrauding, according to the Bible, your spouse. Sex is not just this small part of marriage. I hear a lot of people that talk about this a lot, that marriage is like all these things and sex is just this small part. Sex, biblically, is the central act of marriage. That's why the Bible says things like he went into her and she became his wife. To have marriage, you have to have, you have, to have covenant and you have to have consummation. If you just have consummation, that's not marriage, that's just fornication, that's sexual sin. But if you just have covenant, contract, that's not a marriage either. I have a contract with AT&T for my cell phone bill and I promise you, no consummation, okay? You are not fully married when the pastor says, I now pronounce you husband and wife. You're not fully married until you consummate that marriage. And every time you consummate the marriage, you're renewing your wedding vows. You're becoming one flesh again. In the same way that in Christianity you get baptized once and take of communion a bunch after that, so you get married and you consummate the marriage once, but it's almost like a, a marital communion every other time you're doing that. You're renewing your vows. You're remembering that you are one flesh with your spouse. Sex is super important. Stop defrauding one another. Look at this next part. There's an exception here. Except, perhaps, by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Okay, a few things you need to hear. 
There are times in the Christian life, if you are married, where you may suspend sexual activity with your spouse, but notice these three criteria. Number one, only if you want to. This is not something you have to ever do. This is only something if you want to, okay? If you both decide to agree to it. Number two, only if it's mutual. If one of you's like, hey, I've got a really busy thing going on at work and I just need to devote the next few weeks to that, we shouldn't have sex. And the other one's like, I don't agree with that. Then you don't do it, okay? Then you don't do it. It's gotta be mutual. And number three, it's only for a time. Now, why would he say this? I'm gonna use it. He uses the example of prayer, but I'm gonna extend that uh, uh, illustration to, to make it a little bit clearer. There, I, I have a friend. Actually, they're, they're both my friends, and they are a missionary couple, okay? Husband and wife, and they do missions. There are times where he has to go into a village and he's not gonna be around his wife for a while. Or there are times where she has to fly overseas and he's not gonna be around her for a while. Or there are times where they're preparing and they're getting ready to go, they're ministering to people, they're doing godly things. They're doing eternal-minded things, whether it's evangelism or Bible translation or prayer or whatever it is, and there are times where they have to go a season without having sex with one another. And Paul says, that's okay. But then he encourages them to make sure that that doesn't go on too long. Gordon Fee again says this, but temporary abstinence is only a concession, even for something as worthy as prayer. It is not a normal part of Christian marriage and is thus not a command. And then verse 5b, we're almost done. But then come together again, meaning to, to be intimate with one another again. Be one flesh again. Underline this next part, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Sex, here's the other last profound thing I'm saying. Sex is spiritual warfare, according to this text. Sex is part of the way that you keep the devil, the devil, the devil far from your marriage. We like to think that spiritual warfare is like prayer and repentance and Bible study. This text says sex is one of those weapons. Let me say it another way. If you have a spouse, you probably have somebody who has sinned against you, especially in the area of sexuality. They might have flirted with somebody else, looked upon someone else with lust, looked at pornography. They might have even cheated on you. You need to hear this. It's not you versus your spouse. It's you and your spouse versus the devil. It's not you versus your spouse. It feels that way, but it's you and your spouse versus the devil. Zach, are you saying that if my husband hurts me or if my wife hurts me, even if they cheat on me, I'm supposed to be having more sex with them? That's not what I'm saying at all. That's exactly what God is saying. But Zach, that's too painful. Tell the women in Corinth whose husbands are going to tipple prostitutes and Paul writes this advice. That is what God is saying. To quote the pastor of Denton Bible Church, Tommy Nelson, who I love, if you will not provide for your spouse in the area of sexuality, I know of a devil who will. And even John Calvin as prude as he is, says this, for we are exposed to Satan's temptations in consequence of the infirmity of our flesh. If we wish to shut them out and keep them back, it becomes us to oppose them by the remedy with which the Lord has furnished us. Those therefore act a rash part who give up the use of the marriage bed. That is how you fight. You you wanna help your spouse fight against sexual sin because it's you and your spouse versus the devil? Then be someone who helps them in this area and not someone who hinders them in this area. Lastly, we'll end with this, something pastoral. Since the kids aren't in here, or some of them are, but they're the, they're the ones that can be in here. I'm gonna answer, give you a few questions, uh, or a few questions to think about on a question that I get asked a lot, which is, Zach, what is allowed in the bedroom? It's just me and my spouse, we are married. What is allowed and what is not allowed in the bedroom? Now, I've created a series of illustrations. I'm kidding, I didn't do that. 
I'm just gonna give you some questions that you and your spouse can talk about and you can think through. It would be inappropriate for me to get up here and list acts or something like that. So I'm just gonna give you some questions and we'll end the sermon with that, okay? We'll end the sermon with that. What is allowed in the bedroom? A few questions to ask. Number one, does it involve in any way someone other than your spouse? Okay, it cannot involve someone other than your spouse. This would outlaw adultery, swinging, pornography, pretending that your husband was your boyfriend from college, whatever it might be. Okay, you cannot bring a third party into your marriage, mentally or physically. Number two, is it something with which your spouse is uncomfortable? Do not make your spouse uncomfortable, okay? When we talk about for issues and we talk about strong Christians and weak Christians, some of you will be stronger in this area and others will be weaker in this area. If you are the stronger partner in this area, you need to concede to the weaknesses of your spouse. Now, if you're the weaker spouse on this area, number three, are you uncomfortable with something you should not be? Are you uncomfortable with something you should not be? Number four, and by the way, you don't have to write all these down. If you want these, just email me and I'll send you this list. That way you can just listen. Number four, am I just trying to please myself or am I trying to please my spouse? Number five, does this act make my spouse feel unloved? Does this act make my spouse feel unloved? Number six, this is an important one, so I started the sermon this way. Does my spouse have any previous abuse in their past that might need to be worked through first? Okay? If you have been sexually assaulted or molested, which again, one out of four women, one out of six men, you need to work through that. Don't just let that stay in the back of your mind. Go get counseling. Come here and get counseling. You have to work through it. If you're single and you've been assaulted, sexually assaulted, work through that before you get married so that way it's not as difficult for your spouse. Number seven, in what areas do I have a false sense of shame or guilt even though sex and marriage is meant to be fun and exciting? Where do you have a false sense of guilt? Number eight, in what ways am I bitter with or not satisfied with my spouse and why? And then number nine, do I have a tendency to de-emphasize sex or overemphasize sex and why? You see, people err on two sides of the spectrum. Some think that sex is gross. Others think that sex is God. Neither of those are right. The sex is gross person is someone who always thinks it's dirty, always feels it's bad, doesn't wanna do anything fun with their spouse. The sex is God person is the person who commits sexual sin, who has an idol of sex. That's the thing they most care about in the entire world. Neither of those are right. What's correct is sex as gift. Sex as gift to a married couple. That's God's gift to you on your wedding night. Other people for your wedding, they get you, you know, a toaster. God's gift to you is sex. I don't know how much you like toast, but God gives the better gift. Okay, God gives the better gift. Now, I realize that we're out of time. I I wish I could talk more about this. There's a whole theology of sex. I would love to be able to talk through more at length. We don't have time today. I realize some of these things are hard to hear. I realize some of these things are difficult. I realize they're countercultural. Again, as we say at Parkway, please don't get mad, get coffee. Don't just get angry with us and ghost us. Email us, let's sit down and let's talk about whatever the issue is. We would love to be able to help encourage you, teach you, correct you, pray with you when it comes to this area if we can. Let's pray as we prepare our hearts for communion. God, we confess that you have invented sex. That was your idea, and we have taken it, and we've twisted it. We've perverted it. We've made it something that it should not be. Would you help us? It's hard for us to walk this line of seeing it as a good thing without de-emphasizing it or over-emphasizing it. 
All of us are gonna be tempted to fall into one of those two ruts. Would you help us think biblically about this? I pray for every marriage that's listening to this sermon. I know that there are marriages here that are on the rocks. There are marriages that are leading towards divorce. There are marriages where there has been sexual sin by one of the partners and it has grievously hurt the other partner. But I also believe that Jesus' blood can fix all of it. Maybe I'm just naive. Maybe I'm just stupid. I just think that you're God and you can do what you want. And so I ask that you would please help the marriages in our church. I pray that marriages at Parkway would always be strong. I pray that we would have families that love you. We would disciple our kids well. These are all gifts. We love you and thank you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.